And so they'd use redemption and salvation and sanctification and they'd throw these words around and I'd be like, what the heck is that? And, and I would just nod and act like I knew what I was talking about when I really didn't. So uh, what I want to do is, to my, to, is break down the, the meaning. So what is doctrine? So we're, 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 what is this thing doctrine, Bible doctrine, and what's the point of it? Well, it means teaching and instruction. That's a simple definition. Doctrine is authoritative truths. The purpose of doctrine, and I'll give you some others besides this one, the reason that we have doctrine is to safeguard against error. We have two different concepts. We have doctrine and we have dogma. A doctrine is a substantiated, revealed truth as found in Scripture. So it's not just a revealed truth, it's substantiated within the Bible by other verses. All right? That's what a doctrine is. What is dogma? Dogma is an opinion. Right? So we have doctrine, what the Bible teaches, and we have dogma, what I think, what I feel, what I believe. So while we can say what I think, what I feel, what I believe, you can say all of that, but you can't say that it's doctrine because it's, the Bible teaches clearly on specific subjects. And doctrine is to be substantiated. It is the revealed truth that's substantiated with text and more than one. Dogma is the opinion regarding a truth that forms the basis of a belief system and not necessarily consistent with Scripture. Let's just say that together. Not necessarily consistent with Scripture. We have lots of dogmas. We have lots of opinions. Well, I think, I feel, I believe. Those are opinions. Those are dogmas. And that doesn't mean that they're consistent with what the Bible says. Doctrine and dogma must be defined in order to separate what is authoritative truth from what is opinion. It's very important. As a Christian, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to understand things. We're supposed to grow up in our faith. We're supposed to mature knowing the difference, having the right use of our senses, discerning good and evil, discerning right from wrong, discerning doctrine from dogma. This is what it means to grow up as a Christian. This is what it means to grow up as a believer. No longer tasked about by every wind and wave, by doctrines, foolish and crazy doctrines of people or teachings or dogmas of people, but what the Bible says. All right, next slide. So that's what doctrine is. Next slide is what, is, what types of doctrines do we have? This is important. So we're gonna have this on audio, so hopefully if I, I say something and you wanna kinda hear it again or maybe you didn't understand what it is I'm saying, uh, we'll have audio and SoundCloud and whatnot on it. So in the scripture we have things called orthodox doctrines and we have things called unorthodox doctrines. So what is an orthodox doctrine? They are doctrines that are universally accepted and they are doctrines that are foundation to the belief of Christianity, right? So we have orthodox doctrine, they are universally accepted and they have to, and these are the foundations upon which the Christian faith is established. To teach contrary to orthodox doctrine is defined as heretical teaching, what the Bible would call damnable heresies. So there's a group of them. Now there are other groups of doctrines in the Bible that are what we would consider unorthodox, which means they're not universally accepted and there's a lot of dogma related to what the Bible teaches. There's a lot of opinion related to what the Bible teaches. These are not necessarily foundational truths of the scripture. In other words, they don't violate the faith. So what are some examples of an orthodox doctrine? Sin, human depravity, heaven, hell, incarnation, salvation, repentance, justification, redemption, the Bible, Trinity, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Those are foundational doctrines. Those are orthodox. So in other words, in order for a church to have an orthodox perspective of what the scripture says, 
we have to say what the Bible says in relationship to sin. We have to say what the, what the Bible says in relationship to human depravity, that man is lost. He cannot save himself, utterly hopeless and helpless. We have to say what the Bible says about heaven. We have to say what the Bible says about hell. We have to learn to teach that or learn to understand that. That's an orthodox position. To say there is no hell is an unorthodox position, and the Bible would call that a damnable heresy. So there are pastors out there to this day. There are churches out there to this day. And I'm going to try to use myself because I don't want to posture like I'm above something, but I'm definitely, above, I'm definitely in the orthodox camp. But there are pastors and teachers out there today that will tell you there is no hell. That's a damnable heresy. That's a, that's a heretical teaching. That's not what the Bible says at all. The incarnation that Jesus was God become man, to teach that Jesus is not God become man, is a damnable heresy. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus was God and he became man. It's called the incarnation. Doctrine of justification, doctrine of repentance, all of what those things mean. We have to accept the teachings of what the Bible says on those and that's what unifies the Christian faith. Then there are doctrines that do not unify the Christian faith and should not create disunity. Just because there's different perspectives on these things, we, let's just say it, it should not, come on, say it like you mean it, it should not, create disunity. We unify on the orthodox. So in all things, we strive for, we, we, on, on the absolutes, we unify on. The other things, there's lots of dogmas, which is like what? What are some things? These, these types of things, churches have varying opinions on them. And you say, isn't there clear teaching on these issues? Yes, there are. Then why don't churches follow the clear teachings on those things? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and I'm going to give you pre basically three of them in a minute. But just for the sake of structure here, let's just believe and know that there are different opinions and different perspectives when it comes to the day of worship, right? We have Messianic Christians that say we should worship on the Sabbath and we should begin our worship on Friday night because that's the way it is in the scripture. We have other people say, no, 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 Saturday's the day. No, 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 Sunday's the day. No, I think Tuesday's the day. Th that is an unorthodox doctrine in the scripture and there are varying opinions and it should not create division. What does the Bible say? The Bible gives us a direction, and it says that the, the, the early church met on Sunday. So there's a traditional acceptance and a traditional foundation that says the church meets on Sundays. But the church also adds grace to it, and it says that every day is holy unto the Lord. And so while we can say we have churches that stand up and will be insanely dogmatic and say, if you don't worship on Saturday, you're not worshiping as a true Christian. That is a dogma. That is not a doctrine. If you don't worship on Saturday, on Friday night in relationship to the Sabbath of the Old Testament, you are not a Christian and you're not in true worship. That is a dogma, an opinion, and not a doctrine. In other words, the Bible is not teaching that. Are we understanding this? There are different perspectives in the return of Christ. As Jesus' return, the return, Jesus is coming again. The Bible teaches it. There's a varying perspective and a varying uh, a spectrum of opinions when it comes to the return of Jesus. Anybody who's been around Christianity for a while, you can agree that there's a lot of perspectives on the return of Christ. That is an unorthodox doctrine. While it is a doctrine of the Bible, it is not universally accepted as to how he will return. Nonetheless, it is also not foundational to the faith, other than the fact that he's not returning. Okay? He is returning. The what, the where, the when, and the why, well, there's a lot of opinion on that. Does the Bible give a clear teaching on it? Yes, it does. But do all churches accept the clear teaching? No. And the answer is why? Well, I'm going to hopefully answer that. There's lots of varying opinions on the authority and the identity of the believer. 
Okay, unorthodox doctrine. But does the Bible say anything about our identity? Does the Bible say anything about our authority? You better believe it does. But yet we take different perspectives on it. Some people say that we're sinners and we're always in a posture of sinners saved by grace and we just come before God in a holy awe. And if you don't come before God in a holy awe, then you're really not approaching him the correct way. Okay, that's a dogma. I'm not against holy awe. I'm not against reverence. I'm all for it. But the Bible also tells you in Hebrews to come boldly before the throne of grace. So we're, you know, you can't teach that as a doctrine when you have clear contradictions within the scripture. You can't teach that. The authority of the believer. Do we have authority? Yes, we do. Other people say, no, we don't have any authority. We have delegated authority. That's an absolute fact. Whether we operate with it or not, that's the issue. But we have delegated authority. But there's other, there are other teachings within, within Christianity that will teach you that we don't have any authority. That the authority, you're saved and bless God, that's about all you got. Thank God for that. Is that true? That's a perspective, but that's not doctrine. And so while we can accept it as an opinion, we cannot accept that as the Bible's teaching. There's varying opinions when it comes to healings. There's varying opinions when it comes to miracles. There's varying opinions when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. There's varying opinions when it comes to baptism. I say we dunk. I say we sprinkle. I say we spit on them from across the room. I mean, I say we get a garden hose and we'll hose them down. I mean, there's varying opinions when it comes to baptism, right? Does, it, does the Bible clearly teach the doctrine of baptism? Yes. But this is not an orthodox doctrine and necessitates a division within the church just because we disagree. You understand that? The church can remain and Christianity can remain unified whether we're sprinkling, whether we're dunking, or whether we're hosing you down with a, with a, with a garden hose. That's the point. Does the Bible say what, what should be done? Yeah. But people don't always accept what it is that that should be done. And it's acceptable. Their unacceptance is acceptable because the doctrine is not orthodox. Do we understand that? What we, what we want to do as Christians and what we want to be as God's people is we want to be in orthodox, even in the unorthodox doctrines. We want to do and believe and follow what the Bible says, regardless of what we think, feel or believe. But yet we don't see that often. There's varying opinions on the purpose of the church. Well, I think the church is a social club. I think the church is a hospital. I think the church is a holy citadel that should be established apart from the world and where all the holy people come and we just stand off at a distance. There's varying opinions on, on the doctrine of what the church is. It's called ecclesiology, in case you want to know the, the theological term. And your, the, the church's perspective on that often determines the posture in which the church stands. Well, I believe Jesus was Mr. Rogers and so the church tends to lean to the left. No, I believe Jesus was righteous and holy and he's against sin of all kind. Then we're going to lean to, lean to the right. I believe we're a holy citadel, so you're going to lean back. I believe we're evangelistic, so you're going to lean in. Your perspective or the perspective of the church, and so there's no universal acceptance on what the church is. Does the Bible give clear picture of what the church is? You better believe it does. But do all, do all, Christian, do all of the people in Christianity and all the churches teach what the scripture is indicating? No, they don't. Why is that? Are you trying to say you're righteous and you know more than everybody else? No, I don't. But what I am trying to tell you is not one of these things I have not examined. Now, one of these things I have not pressed in. You know, I, I, that's what I will say. I'm not saying I'm above anything. And I'm not saying that I'm more righteous or this church is more righteous or we're more holy than the church down the street or anything like that. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to give you some understanding of how the church, how the church operates. So there's varying opinions on these things. There's varying differences on these things. Yet we need to agree to disagree when it comes to these things and not divide not divide as a church, not divide as a body, not divide as the universal body of Christ. 
I associate with a lot of different pastors and they have varying perspectives when it comes to these doctrines. And when I talk to them, we're not on the same page. But that doesn't mean I don't hang out with them or I don't talk to them or I don't even listen to them. I listen to guys and I learn from people who are smarter than me that hold completely different opinions than I do when it comes to these doctrines. So just because someone has an, has an, an orthodox or, or a difference of opinion does not mean that that person is a heretical teacher. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to show you some dogmatic statements and then I'm going to answer this question. What, why do we hold unorthodox teaching? So next slide. Here we go. I've had Christians say, only oh, listen to John MacArthur. He's a man of God. Everything he says is man of God. I just follow everything he says. John MacArthur is a man of God. John MacArthur is an incredible Bible theologian, but he is not one that you would learn anything about the gifts of the Spirit on. In his response to 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, though I speak for the tongue of men and the tongue of angels, but have not God, it profits me nothing. I'm templing brass and a sounding cymbal. What was his response when they asked him about tongues? His response was, angels don't have mouths, neither do they have vocal cords. And so you say, what do they have? And he says, I don't know. But whatever they have, there is no such thing as an angelic language. Well, where the heck did he get that from? He didn't get that from the Bible. That's a completely dogmatic opinion. That is his opinion. And so what's happening here is John MacArthur is confronted with a teaching that he can't reconcile. He can't reconcile the gift of tongues, therefore he creates a doctrine and he creates an opinion that is his own that contrasts the Bible. And you say, why would he do that? Because he himself can't reconcile the gift of tongues and so it's clearly in the text and so he has to create an imaginary world in order for his belief to exist in that world. You see that? You see that that's what dogma does. Dogma enables us to create imaginary worlds in which our beliefs can exist but don't necessarily mean that that's what the Bible is saying. Is anybody here? Benny Hinn. So here, I just want to show you something here. I tried to be fair. So I have Baptist pastors. I have C3 pastors. I have Pentecostal pastors. And if I could think of anything recently stupid that I said, I would have put myself up there too. So, so you know. <laughs> Benny Hinn said, Adam could fly. Not only could he fly, he could fly into outer space. I don't know what Adam could or couldn't do. Right? Maybe he could, maybe he couldn't, maybe he could transcend. I don't know what he could do, but he couldn't do that. The Bible doesn't say he did that. And so you can't say or teach that as a doctrine because the scripture doesn't say that Adam could fly. And it certainly doesn't say he could fly into outer space. So what I'm trying to show you is dogmatic opinion. And oftentimes we listen to people what they say and we're not Berean. We don't study the text. We just say, oh, well, he said this, so it must be true. Not necessarily. It's dogma. Mark Driscoll, here you go ladies. Mark's always popular with the women. God created the woman to stay at home and to care for the needs of the home and that's where she needs to be. <laughs> that's dogma, that's not doctrine. Now there are women who wanna stay home and wanna care for the needs of the family and wanna do all that. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Ladies, you got, an opera. You got, you got it better than we do. Because the Bible actually gives you two choices. You can stay home and raise the kids and take care of the house or you can go out and work. Dudes, we got one. Go get, go get a job. I don't get the opportunity to say, hey, Kevin, if you want to stay home. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that because I cared for my kids for a long time and it was a trade-off between, and I, I helped my wife and my wife helped me and we, we raised our children together. But what he's saying here is a complete opinion. The Bible doesn't say that in any place. It doesn't say that. And if he's, you think that's true, we're missing Lydia, 
So we have a woman in the New Testament named Lydia, very wealthy, very successful businesswoman. The Bible doesn't say she was Holly the homemaker. It said she made a lot of money and she funded the gospel. That's what it says. She was a trader in purple garments, which means she dealt with royalty because only royalty wore the purple. Okay. And so she was, a, then we find, we can go to the, the Old Testament, right? We can look at the Queen of Sheba. She was a person who held political office. I doubt she had dinner on the table at six. So we can't say that this woman, that every woman is created to stay in the home and raise the children. I'm not saying you're not, that's not a good thing. Do you, do you understand? Because I I'm, I'm feel like I'm going to get it from both sides. What are you trying to say? I like to stay home and raise my kids. What are you trying to say? I don't know. So I'm just trying to give you the balance here, what the Bible is saying. Then we have Proverbs 31. If we want to take that as a doctrine, we cannot because Proverbs 31 contradicts it. Proverbs 31, the woman in Proverbs 31 is a trader. She's buying and selling. She's weaving flax and woolen and selling it and purchasing land and selling land. She's not Holly the homemaker. Now there's nothing wrong with being Holly the homemaker, right? But ladies, this is a liberty to you. So that is a dogmatic statement and you can't teach that as doctrine. That's what I'm trying to say. Then we have James McDonald. Okay? The consumption of alcohol is a sin and should be avoided at all costs. Does the Bible teach that? No. That's an opinion. What does the Bible teach? It says alcohol is not the sin. Drunkenness is the sin. And so what does that mean? If you have a problem with getting drunk when you drink, you shouldn't drink at all. Right? If you have a problem and you can't control yourself, you shouldn't drink. It also means if you're around people who struggle with alcohol, you shouldn't drink around them either. But it doesn't, there's nowhere where there's an absolute prohibition on alcohol. Now, while we can say that, we cannot accept that as a doctrine because that is a dogma. Anyway, and here's one, John Piper. A lot of these guys are theologians, which means they teach in Bible schools. They teach in seminaries. John Piper was confronted with the question, why don't we see miracles? And what did Jesus mean when he said, greater works than these you shall do? So here's what Jesus said. These works you shall do, everything that I've done, you're going to do because I'm going to transfer the kingdom authority to you. That's what he said. Okay. And he didn't stutter. And not only these things are you going to do, but you're going to do greater works. And so the question was, John, why don't we see miracles? And what did Jesus mean when we're supposed to do greater works? And what was his answer? In my opinion, he's saying the church is nothing more than a glorified moose lodge. I think that the whole concept of education and the concept of charitable hospitals and orphanages and the host of humanitarian activities, I think personally, that's what Jesus meant when he said greater works. Does anybody want to agree with that? That is not what Jesus meant. That's a dogmatic opinion from a Bible theologian. You can't teach that as doctrine because that is not what the Bible meant. And his response, which I'll get into later, there's another area that I want to point out to him and where there's an issue that's, that's going on there as well. So anyway, next, next thing. So where's the church at today when it comes to Bible doctrine? Where are we? Well, Steve Furtick, next-gen pastor, you know, great guy, young guy, blah, blah, blah. What does he say? Well, I don't teach doctrine. It gets in the way of evangelism. Okay. Joel Osteen was asked the question, and I'm not against anybody, so please be with me. I respect all. I honor all. So there's nothing here. I'm capable of saying something that stupid and more. Right? So I'm capable of saying anything that's that, that's that dumb because I'm human. And guess what? So are you. You're capable of saying stu stupid things out of your mouth as well. So I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to point out to you something that somebody stands up and says, doctrine's not necessary. We focus on evangelism. That is completely wrong. Then we have Joel Osteen, who's on Larry King, and they ask him, they say, Joel, when you get to heaven, are you going to see Jews and Muslims and, and Hindus? Are they going to enter the kingdom just like you? Is God going to accept them based upon their faith just like you? And what is his answer? I don't know. 
I don't know. So while Joel is a man of God, Joel loves Jesus, Joel needs to learn his theology. Joel needs to learn his doctrine. Joel needs to learn what Nicodemus, what Jesus said to Nicodemus, are you teaching the people and you don't know what you're talking about? Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you don't know these things? I don't know. And here's his answer. I avoid doctrine. It keeps me from reaching people. Brian McLaren said, the Bible is not to be viewed as doctrine, but as trajectories. So the Bible isn't a system of doctrines. It's not a system of beliefs. It's simply pathways unto God. Is that true? Absolutely not. Those are dogmatic opinions of people. That's not what the Bible says. Second Timothy says, for the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. They will suit their own desires. And they will gather around them a great number of teachers who will teach what their itching ears want to hear. Now, oftentimes this is given in the perspective that there's going to be all these false teachers. We'll read it again. The issue isn't just the false teachers. Where's the issue? Somebody help me out. Read the clear text. The issue is with the people. The issue isn't with the, this issue isn't with the text. The people won't want what the Bible teaches. The people will not endure the sound doctrine. They'll say, well, I don't, I don't care. I don't believe that. I'm not going to put up with that. I'm going to go find somebody who's going to teach me what I want to hear. I'm going to go find somebody who lines up with the way I see things. That's a problem. There's a warning attached to that. So what we have to do is we have to be willing to submit to the things that God says or willing to find, follow the teachings of what the scripture says, regardless of what we think. Let's just say this together because this is therapy. It doesn't matter. Come on. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I feel. And it doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what the Bible says. My thoughts, my feelings, and my beliefs must submit to the text no matter how uncomfortable that makes me. That's the facts. And guess what? When you submit to the text, you're going to be uncomfortable because it's called submission. Submission. Anytime you have submission, your pride's involved and your pride's going to get whacked. So when you submit, that's, you know, if, you, if submission, if, if it doesn't involve your pride and it doesn't involve humility, it's not submission, it's agreement. And so what we tend to do is we submit only to the doctrines that we agree and are unwilling to submit to the doctrines that we don't agree. That's not submission. I submit only to the things that I like, not to the things I don't. I agree with only the things I agree with and not the things I don't. That's the point, and that's a problem. And that's the way our Western world is, and that's the way our, we're raising a generation that is, you know, anytime you tell them what you think doesn't matter, what you believe doesn't matter, what you feel doesn't matter. Now, that's not a callous statement to say you're not to think and you don't have any feelings or you don't have any beliefs. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying in light of clear truth, what you think, what you feel, and what you believe is irrelevant. Clear truth trumps what you think. Clear truth trumps what you feel. And clear truth trumps what you believe. So again, it's not an issue of I'm not allowed to think or I'm not allowed to believe or I'm not allowed to feel. That's not the issue. You are, provided that your thoughts, your beliefs, and your, and your feelings come in line with the scripture. And if they don't, guess what you're supposed to do? Submit them. Humble yourself and submit them. My name is Kevin, and I'm your friend. <laughs> so why do we teach, why if the Bible gives us clear teaching, why do we teach dogma in relationship to unorthodox doctrine? Why? Well, ignorance. Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus, and he just didn't know. 
He's just clueless. And so Nicodemus is teaching a doctrine and he's teaching people what he would view as a doctrine based upon his own ignorance. So people teach unorthodox truths based upon what they don't know. People teach unorthodox truths based upon tradition. This is a big one, particularly in denominational settings. It's based upon tradition. Bless God, this is the way we've, what are some traditions? Well, there are some churches that every instrument in the church has to be prayed over and sanctified or the church is not, or that instrument is not holy. Is that in the Bible? Absolutely not. That's not in the Bible. You know, there are other churches that's view when it comes to music, the piano is the only holy organ. <laughs> Drums are of the devil. You think I'm kidding. This is, this is what people, is that true? Absolutely not. Clearly they haven't read the Psalms, right? Praise him with the strings, praise him with the heart, praise him with the lute, praise him with the song, praise him with the heights, praise him with, you know, praise him with everything you got. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord and use anything you got. Praise him with the spoons, man. I mean, but praise him. Traditions. We haven't believed in miracles in 300 years. We're not about to start now. You think I'm kidding? We don't believe in that. Well, here's a miracle. Too bad. We don't believe in that. We haven't seen that in 300 years. Our tradition says we don't believe in it. Yeah, but the Bible says this. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. It's our tradition. And so they nullify the word of God through tradition. This is what it says. Let's just say it together. Here again, let's have some therapy this morning. I will make the word of God of no power by my traditions and by my personal beliefs. By your personal beliefs and by your traditions, the word of God has no power. It will have no power. It's, it cannot affect change because you have a tradition that's contrary to it, or it cannot affect change because you have a belief or a personal perspective that's contrary to it. What's the third reason? This pride. The way of the fool is right in their own eyes. So why do we not accept an orthodox doctrine? Why are we teaching unorthodox doctrines? Because the way of the fool is right in their own eyes, but a wise person listens to counsel. Isaiah 52, woe to those who are wise in their own opinion and clever in their own sight. Well, I just think I know better. So what happens when we're confronted with truth is we have one or two things. The issue is, is that we have to humble ourselves, but anytime we have to humble ourselves, you and I have something that's our sin nature. This is our sin nature. Your sin nature is selfish pride. Selfish pride wants to defend your rights. Selfish pride wants to defend your opinion. Selfish pride wants to prevent you from saying, I'm wrong. And so what happens, even when you're shown clear truth, people's pride rises up to defend them. That's the sin nature. Tell people you're lost, you're a sinner. If you don't receive Christ, you're lost eternally. Now they either have to humble themselves beneath that or pride rises up. Well, I don't believe that. I don't think that. I don't think that's true. Selfish pride rises to defend ourselves. So what we have to learn to do is humble ourselves and extract the selfish pride. That's not easy. But pride prevents us from teaching what the Bible teaches. Pride prevents us from accepting what the Bible teaches. So we either don't know, we don't know it, or we've been taught a tradition or a dogma, or we, our pride won't let us accept the clear instructions. So how do you study the Bible? Number one, let's say it together, I have to want truth. If you don't want truth, Jesus himself can't help you. If you don't want truth. If, you, if, you do, if you're not willing to accept truth or look at what truth is and accept it, no one can help you. No one can help you. What's the verse? The word, let's say it. The word will not profit me if I do not mix it with faith. 
you don't want truth, this is what it says. The word doesn't profit, didn't profit Israel because they got the same word and they didn't mix it with faith. And so the word, whatever the word was spoken to them, the prophetic word, the instructional word of God, the directional word of God, the miraculous word of God, whatever word was spoken to them, they could not receive it because they were not willing to accept the truth. See the problem? If you want to study the Bible, you have to be willing to accept truth. Number two, you have to be willing to submit to the text. It's not an issue of what you think, what you feel, what you believe. It's an issue of what is the clear teaching within the text, what is the consistency of doctrine throughout the scripture. Joyful are the people of integrity who what? Humbly follow the instructions of God. So if you want to study your Bible, you have to want the truth. If you want to study your Bible, you have to learn to humble yourself beneath the truth. I'll give you one of my own because I'll try to use myself here this morning. Okay? I had particular opinions and perspectives when it came to the return of Jesus. And the majority of my beliefs and perspectives and understandings that came, that I had adopted from the return of Jesus were a result of the church that I was with. Okay? And they were a result of the dogma and the books that I was reading. So I had a very staunch opinion when it came to the return of Christ. Is anybody here? Okay. I'm exemplifying myself so that you too can see me in light of where you are. Okay. And some of you may be. So I had a very staunch opinion. I had a person come to me, used to hammer me all the time about varying things. And some of the stuff the guy wanted me to look at was just flat out crazy. Have you looked at this? Have you considered this? Have you thought about this? Have you looked at this? And it was just nuts, some of the stuff. And so the guy didn't have a lot of credibility with me because he kept trying to get me to read all this nut, nonsensical, insane stuff. But he comes and he hands me a book. And he says, you really need to read this. You're like, man, dude, I don't want it. And he shoves the book in my hand and says, no, just take it home. And I really want you to read it. And I really want you to look at it. And I open the book. And on the first page is the proverb, a fool answers a matter before it's heard. The fools answer the matter before it's heard. So what do you think I did? Do you think I read the book? Or I went, oh, take this book back. I'm never going to read this. No, I read the book. And I proceeded through the book. And I saw the point of view. And not only did I read a book, but what this guy was doing in the book, huh? He wasn't giving me opinion. He was giving me exegesis. He was showing me consistent teaching and consistent doctrine. And he was pulling the thread from old all the way through new. He was pulling the thread from Genesis all the way through Revelation. That's called an irrefutable doctrine, in case you're wondering. And so when he was presenting the case to me from the perspective in which he was standing, and the case was presented to me in the format that I understood that that is an irrefutable doctrine, it can't be denied, I began to have issues. It was completely wrecking me because I had built, wait, ready, ready, listen to me. I had built an entire belief system over what I thought was right. I had built, I had constructed an entire city around what I thought was right. And was I right? Not according to biblical exegesis. I was wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong. And when I started to take the steps and began the process of understanding it in light, it took me two years. Huh? Everybody say it with me. It took him two years. It took me two years. My wife will tell you. She thought I was insane. She's like, why are you studying this? I don't understand. She's like, every waking moment you're studying this. You know why I was studying it? Because I didn't want to be wrong. And you know what I did? Because I no longer, I had a conflicting view. Ready? I had a conflicting view with my own. So you know what I did? I put my hand over my mouth and I shut up. And I no longer taught what I was now confused on. And I backed up and began to get and understand what it is that I was actually saying. 
And so I took the time and I took two years out of my life consistently. It wasn't like every day, but until, until God brought me to the fullness of the revelation and the fullness of the understanding. And when I had the fullness of the revelation and the fullness of the understanding, then and only then did I form my opinion. And my opinion wasn't based upon what I thought. And my opinion wasn't based upon what I felt. And my opinion wasn't based upon what I believed because everything I believed just had a wrecking ball thrown right through it. My house got boom, blown up. Somebody just threw a ball through, my, through the house. Now, was it the guy? No, it wasn't the guy who gave me the book. And so I had to back up and I had to learn something differently. And I had to abandon my traditions. And I had to abandon my pride. And I had to abandon my position on all of this stuff. And I had to learn something different. We go to plant this church. Jesus is telling us to plant the church. You know how long it took me to figure out what a church was? He said, it shouldn't take you that long. It took me a while. It took me two years. Again, because I don't know what I'm doing. And so I backed up and I said, what is it that Jesus wants from a church? We just show up and teach the Bible. Is that it? Really? That's not it. So I had to understand from the perspective, what is it that he's seeing? And so my word to you is, don't be afraid of the wrecking ball that comes through your house. Don't be afraid of perspectives that rock your world and go, well, I don't know. I've never been taught that before. Or I don't know. That's not really how I see things or feel things or unbelieve things. As long, if it's proven in doctrine, you have to accept it. You can't deny it. Once it's proven in the doctrine of the scripture, you are forced now into a position of opinion, but you cannot say that it's doctrine. You can say it's opinion and you're entitled to your opinion, but no longer can you say it's doctrine because it's not. Are we clear? I'm trying to teach you. This is universal how the Bible is taught. This is how, anything apart from this is how cults are formed. Don't teach what you don't know. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for we know that we will be judged with greater strictness. I am consciously aware that every doctrine, every teaching, every verse, every perspective, everything that comes out of my mouth, I will account to the Lord for. I am responsible for the influence that I give you. I am not only responsible for the influence that I give you, I am responsible for the influence that I fail to give you. I'm not only responsible for what is entrusted to me, I'm a I am responsible for the potential of what has been entrusted to me. You are not only responsible for what has been entrusted to you, Christian, you are responsible for the potential of what has been entrusted to you. Read the parable of the talents and see if Jesus doesn't have a problem with potential, neglected potential. You are responsible for that and you are responsible to figure it out. I'm aware that everything I say is judged. I'm aware that I will account and I take that very seriously. First Timothy 1.6 says this, having strayed and turned aside from the truth, some desire empty talk. In other words, talking about stupid stuff. They want to be teachers of the word, but they don't understand what they're teaching and they don't understand the things that they're affirming. In other words, they're speaking from ignorance. They have no idea what it is they're saying. No idea. But we're just going to say, well, I think, I feel, I believe. Was that what the Bible says in clearness of doctrine? And that's not to say that you shouldn't help and teach the Bible, but that's not the problem. The problem is, is you shouldn't be establishing doctrine if you do not know what the Bible teaches as far as doctrine. And you should, if you're going to be a teacher, you should know the difference between doctrine and dogma. And if you don't know the difference between deep doctrine and dogma, guess what? Put your hand over your mouth. Do not speak. Because you can't discern doctrine from dogma. You have no right to instruct people. Just saying. But if you want to instruct people, then hey, join the party. But learn to, to discern doctrine from dogma. Learn to rightly divide the word of truth. Learn to do that, and I'm going to show you how to do it. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to what? Sound doctrine, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he's using the two words, the unorthodox doctrine 
and he's using the orthodox doctrines, which are the teachings of Christ. If they don't consent to these things, the doctrines which accord to godliness or to being like God, they're proud, they know nothing, they're obsessed with disputes, arguments, and words over which comes envy, strife, reveling, and evil suspicions. We submit to the doctrines and to teachings of the Bible. This is what we are to do as Christians. So here's the big question. What are the principles of sound doctrine? I'm glad you asked. Anybody want to know the principles of sound doctrine? One person? Yes? No? One of you. Thank you. <laughs> doctrine, the Bible is understood two ways. It is understood through applying the laws of hermeneutics, and it is understood through applying the principles of systematic theology. Now, while that may sound really big and lofty, I'm going to show you some simple, simplistic things that relate to it. And then I'm going to take a very difficult passage of Scripture, and we are going to apply some of the laws, and you're going to see how it is the way that it is. So what is laws of hermeneutics? It's the science of interpretation. That's simply what it means. What is systematic theology? It is a coherent account of the Christian faith and beliefs. The Christian faith and beliefs presented in a coherent way through a systematic process of understanding. That's how we get doctrine. So, next slide. Get your cameras ready, because I put it all on one slide for you. There's a couple more, but these are the most important ones. There's a few more, but that's, I didn't want to overwhelm you. Laws of hermeneutics, laws of systematic theology, laws of biblical understanding. I put it on one slide so all you camera people can take a picture of the slide. What are they? How do we understand the Bible? Rule one, law of grammar. Say it with me, law of grammar. In other words, the understanding of the word and the understanding of the usage is to be drawn from the original context or the original text. In other words, what we read in English is not necessarily the fullness of the meaning. We're to go back to the original language. This is the laws of biblical interpretation, which means what? Which means in the Old Testament, we have Hebrew and Koine Greek. We have it translated in Hebrew, and it was translated in the Septuagint into Koine Greek. So we have the language in the Old Testament in two different languages. We have the New Testament specifically in Koine Greek. So if you want to understand the Bible and you understand what it's actually saying, you have to go back into the Koine Greek. You have to understand and exegist the words from the Greek perspective. And there's a whole process to that, which I don't want to confuse you on. Nonetheless, it is, it's not like it's overwhelming and it's like launching a rocket to the moon. It's, but, but there is a process to it. There's the laws of usage. So here we go. How is that word used in other parts of the scripture? Let's just take a, like a verse. Let's take John 3.16, for God so loved the world. In Koine Greek, there's four different words for love. I don't know if you knew that or not. We have one word. I love you. I love chocolate ice cream. I love my dog. I love my car. I love my job. I love my neighbor. We kind of can convolute the whole idea of love. But in the Greek, there's four. We have agapeo. We have phileo. We have um, eros. And I can't remember the last one. The last one is affinity or affection. What is the word being used in John 3.16? It's the Greek word agapeo. Well, what does the word agapeo mean? It means self-sacrificing love. Wow. So God so self-sacrificingly loved. Do you see the difference? He didn't just love it like he loved ice cream. He self-sacrificingly loved. He didn't say phileo, which is friendship. God had a friendship love for the world. He didn't say eros, which is intimate erotic love between a man and a woman. He didn't say I had an intimate erotic love affair with the world. He didn't say that either. He didn't even say, I have an affinity for the world, which is another word for love. He said, I self-sacrificingly love the world. That's what he said. 
And so we and now we have to take the word agapeo and we have to compare it to every other place that agape is used. Is it used in the same context? We have context and historical background. What is the environment that the text is being written in? What is the history behind the text in which it's being written in? I'll give you an example from a couple of weeks ago. I talked to you about Caesarea Philippi. Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. So I give you the history behind what's going on there. And I give you the context behind what's happening there. And when you understand the history and the context of what's going on, when Jesus is saying that, it opens the verse up to you. Understand? So when I tell you he's at, the, he's at the height of the God Pan and he's standing in an arena where there's gods all around him, that's the context. And Jesus looks at his disciples. He said, in the midst of all these gods, who am I? Well, that makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? Rather than skip to the Ludade, Jesus took a little jog up to Caesarea with his disciples. I'll say this. Jesus went a lot of places that would shock us. He went into a lot of arenas that would actually blow your mind. So he went to a, he went, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off. Don't go there, Kevin, don't go there. Woo, woo, woo. Come back, back, back. Law of precedent, okay? Let's say this together. Law of precedent is huge. Most error, most lack of, most lack of understanding comes from the lack of the law of precedent. Law of precedent is this. What you start with is what you begin with. What you precede it with is what you finish with. So if you take the context of an interpretive position that says there are no miracles, okay, then you must take the interpretive context that there are no miracles at all. You cannot say, well, there's a miracle here and there's a miracle there and there's a miracle there. It's either what or all or nothing. If you take the perspective, like this is another perspective that's oftentimes taught, and it says, okay, well, this chapter was written specifically to the Jewish people, or this chapter was written specifically to the early church, or this chapter was written specifically to, to, to uh, whomever. Unless the text is telling you who it applies to, you can't do that. Unless you, the text is telling you where the precedent begins, you can't do that. So when you say, and I, this is a common argument, Matthew 24, which relates to the return of Christ, is written exclusively to the Jewish people. Okay, we can accept that. So we've just established a precedent that Matthew 24 is written to the Jews. Now we must do what? What do we got to do now? Because we've just, we're just, now we're engaging the law of precedence. So now we must take the entire book of Matthew and we must apply the same precedent to the book of Matthew. Which means what? Which means Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go into all the world, we can no longer apply that to ourselves. We have to apply that strictly to the context that was established in Matthew 24, which says the book was written exclusively to Jews. And so what we do is we apply precedence and we don't follow the precedent. We don't follow the precedent. You know, cessationist doctrine. This is why it's wrong from a biblical point of view. Can you be a cessationist? You can be a cessationist. If you don't believe there's any miracles, hey, it's not, it's an unorthodox teaching, have your perspective. But you need to accept it as an opinion and not doctrine because it violates the law of precedent. You're saying there are no miracles except the miracle of salvation. You've just violated the principles of sound doctrine. This is how cults are formed. Cults are formed when we violate these rules. Well, I think this applies, but this doesn't apply. Well, I think Jesus is saying this to this person over here, but he's not saying this to me. That's how cultic teaching is applied, is when we violate the rules of sound doctrine. So you're free to take a position that's different, but you have to context it in the system of it's your opinion, and it's not what the Bible teaches. You cannot come from the framework that the Bible is teaching that. You can't. 
laws of first use. What is the law of first use? If you want to understand something about the Bible, you have to go whether it's an idea, whether it's a concept, whether it's a word. You go back to where it is first used. For instance, sin. We want to understand sin. The first use of the idea, the concept, or the word becomes the key that is to be followed for the rest of the understanding. So we want to understand sin, so we got to go back to Genesis. We go back to Genesis, we look where the sin happened, we look where the fall happened, we begin to ascertain what was going on there. Why was this happening? What was going on here? What were the results of that? What were the ramifications of that? And now we've got an understanding of sin because we're back at the first use and now we can move forward and we can relate everything back to the first use. That's how, that's how, you, that's how you study your Bible. Laws of comparison. This is how teachers are to teach you the scripture. If teachers teach you this stuff without applying these rules, they're not teaching you correctly. They're not. They're teaching you dogma. They're teaching you tradition. They're teaching you opinion. They're teaching you a lot of things. But if you have a, your, your, your teachers need to apply these rules. And if you're going to be a teacher, these are the, these are the applicational rules that you use. Laws of comparison. Where is that you? We compare scripture to scripture. Okay, so this verse, is there something similar to that verse? Yes, we compare verse to verse, we compare line to line, we compare word to word. Where else is that word used? Where else is that scripture used? Do the comparison, comparative analysis, if you will, between the two. Laws of interpretation. This is another big one. The Bible is to be interpreted by itself. Let's just say that together. The Bible is to be interpreted by itself. So when there's a difficult passage of scripture, we are to not seek the interpretation of the scripture outside the, outside the Bible itself. The Bible's unique in of itself in that it, it's like no other book on the planet. The Bible always interprets itself. Always. The Bible is always, in, it's always, it's always its own interpreter. It's complete and whole in itself. Law of interpretation. Law of recurrence. This is a huge one. Another one. Does the teaching recur consistently through the Bible? If the teaching does not consistently recur through the Bible, it cannot be a doctrine. But if the teaching consistently recurs through the Bible, it is a doctrine. And it gets better. There are things that are known as irrefutable doctrines. Just say this, irrefutable doctrine. Next slide. What is an irrefutable doctrine? Irrefutable doctrine looks something like this. So while we can find consistent themes through the Bible, and we can find it in the old and the new, okay? We have doctrine. We can find it consistently in the books. Here's the big one. You ready for the big one? Is it found throughout the ages of the Bible? If it is found throughout the ages of the Bible, everybody say it with me, it is an irrefutable doctrine. I may not like it, say it with me, I may not like it, but it is an irrefutable doctrine. So let's look at something. Is Jesus, so we have the ages of the Bible. What are the ages? We have the age of Adam, which is the age of the creation up until the time of the flood. Does the teaching occur in the age of Adam? Then we have the patriarchal age, which is the age of Abraham all the way up until the time of Moses, or literally Exodus 20. So Abraham all the way to Exodus 20. Does it occur in the patriarchal age? Does it occur in the law and the prophets, which is basically Exodus 20 all the way through the book of Malachi? Does the teaching occur there? Does the teaching occur in the gospel when Jesus was on the earth? Do we see this when Jesus was on the earth? Does it occur in the church age? In other words, when Jesus rose from the dead and commissioned the church, does the same teaching occur there? Does the teaching occur in the millennial, which is the age to come? And there are doctrines where it occurs in all of this. Like what? Is Jesus Lord in the, in, in the Adamic age? I'm not going to proof text you on all of this because I'm not, I don't, this is going to take, we'd be here for another three hours. 
Let's take the doctrine of Jesus as Lord. Is Jesus Lord in the Edemic age prior to the flood? Yes. Is Jesus Lord after the fall or after the flood? Yes. Is Jesus Lord in the law and the prophets? Yes. Is Jesus Lord in the age of the gospel? Yes. Is Jesus Lord in the age of the church? Yes. Is Jesus Lord in the millennial age? Yes. Therefore, Jesus is Lord is an irrefutable doctrine. Is salvation by faith or salvation by blood atonement found in, in, in all of these ages? Uh, yeah. So we have Adamic. We have, the, we, have the, we have salvation through the seed of the woman. We have the patriarchal age. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Jesus said to Abraham, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. We have the law and the prophets. We have the Passover lamb. We have the gospel. Jesus is the Passover lamb. We have right now, we have in the church age, we have the blood atonement in the spirit. And in the millennial age, where is our salvation? When Jesus comes in fullness, we receive the fullness of our salvation. So is salvation an, an, an irrefutable doctrine? Yes, it is. So when Christ comes, we do not know who we will be, but we will receive the fullness of all that we are. We don't even have the fullness of our salvation. You have the fullness of your spiritual salvation, but you do not have the fullness of the redemption. So I know I'm blowing some of your minds here, but just stay with me. I'm trying to show you and what we need to do and what has to happen among the church is we need, some girl came up to me, she's like, wow, this just really affirms me. She came up to me after first service and she said, I just really feel like I have more control over the truth that I understand. And I'm like, exactly. Yes, you do. All right. So let's take another one. Is healing found in the Adamic age? There was no need for it because Adam was completely whole. Is it found in the patriarchal age? Yes. X, X, uh, Genesis 20. Abraham prayed for Abimelech and his and Bible says God healed her womb. Is it found in the law of the prophets? It's full through the law and the prophets. Is, is healing found in the gospels when Jesus was on the earth? Obviously, yes. Is healing found in the church age after Christ ascended? Absolutely, yes. Is healing found in the millennial age? Ooh, is it? Where? Help me. Give me a verse. And he gave the leaves of the trees for what? Healing. healing of the nation. So is healing an irrefutable doctrine? Yes or no? Yes. I'm not telling you to agree with me. I'm just simply asking a question. You don't have to agree with me. So what happens? We have to take our positions, we have to take our perspectives, and we have to submit them into what the Bible teaches us. Regardless of what we think, feel, or believe, if the Bible is teaching us, and if you find the thread through the ages, it is irrefutable. Irrefutable. You can't deny it. It can't be denied. You can have an opinion that's different, fine. You can have a belief system that's different, fine. You, it's, that's, that's completely okay. But we, what we cannot do is we cannot say the Bible says this. We can't say that. So now what I'm going to do, and for the final act, <laughs> I'm going to take for you a very difficult passage of scripture a very difficult thing that is very difficult for people to understand. And this is actually one of the questions that I got when I asked you for questions. This is one of the questions that I got. And I thought this is a great one. So let's break it down. So I'm going to take this Bible. I'm going to take this verse and we're going to apply the laws of grammar. We're going to apply the laws of comparison. We're going to apply the laws of usage. And what is this? Common understanding. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Jesus knocked Paul off his horse and struck him with blindness. Anybody ever heard that? One of you? <laughs> okay, let's read it. As they journeyed and they came near to Damascus, a light shone around him from heaven, meaning Paul. And he fell to the ground. It was Saul at this time. His name hadn't been changed. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. It's hard to kick against the goads. So he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
And the Lord said, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And so Saul stood from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Okay, now let's read it. So Acts 9 is Luke, the biographer, telling the story in third person. Acts 22, here we go, scriptural comparison. Paul, Acts 22 is Paul telling the same story, first person. He says, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a great voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And those who were with me, blah, blah, blah. And he says, so I said, what shall I do, Lord? And he said to me, arise and go into Damascus and you will be told the things which we were appointed to do. And since I could not see because of the glory of the light, being led by the hand by those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Two questions. Question one, where's the horse? Where's the donkey? We teach doctrines that say Jesus knocked Paul off his horse. There's no horse, nor is there a donkey in the story. So this is, an, this is another law, clear reading. So clear reading is another one that I didn't put up there, but there's, there's like four more, but I, I, just, I didn't want to overwhelm you, and I didn't want to take five hours to do this. I don't have a problem taking five hours to do this, but somebody's got barbecues to go to tomorrow, so anyway. <laughs> Second thing is, is where in either of those passages does it say that Jesus struck Paul with blindness? Where? It does not. I'll answer it for you. It says he opened his eyes and he could see no one. It says down here, I couldn't see because of the glory of the light. And I was being led by the hand. He doesn't say the one who spoke to me struck my eyes with blindness. He doesn't say the one that, the one that spoke to me made me blind. Not in the text at all. So you're saying, well, I still don't believe you, okay? So now let's go to the law of grammar. So we have comparison. We're gonna, now we're gonna apply the laws of grammar and we're gonna apply the laws of usage and let's see if Paul was actually blind. Next slide. So I broke it down for you and I just extracted this portion of it. So Acts 9, it says, Then Saul rose from the ground and when he opened his eyes, he saw, these are the words we're looking for, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was led three days without sight, neither eating or drinking. So there's our two words. Acts 22, we have the same thing. And I saw, and since I could not see for the glory of the light being led by the hand, those around me got came to Damascus. The word for see here is the word blepo. Greek word blepo. What does it mean? It means awareness, it means discernment, and it means perception. So Paul says, when I opened my eyes, I could not perceive. When I opened my eyes, I could not understand. And I had no perception because of the light. That's how he's using it. Ready? Hold your seats. Let's look for use. 132 times this is used in the Bible. Is it ever used for blindness? Is that word where Paul is saying, saw, sight, all that, is it ever used to connotate blindness? In 132 times, answer, no. So we cannot say that Jesus, first of all, we can't put Jesus in the equation at all, but we also cannot say that Paul was blind. What is the word for blindness? I'm glad you asked. The Greek word for blindness is the, is the Greek word tiflos. It is an adjective a word that describes a noun or a word that describes a state of being. So when, when the Bible uses the word blind, it uses the Greek word tiflos. 50 occurrences in the Bible. Every single one of them mean the word blind, right? So here we have this, I'm giving you textual analysis. So let's ask a question. Are these words used other places? I just told you yes, here's a bigger one. Are they ever used together? Now we can do a real comparison. 
So now not only can we look at the law of usage, but we cannot just compare the text, we're gonna compare the words. This is how you understand your Bible. Are the words ever used together? Answer, yes. Next slide. Mark 8. Then he came to Bethesda and they brought to him a blind man, Tiflas, blind. And he took him by the hand, the blind man, Tiflas, and they led him out of the town. And when he had spit in his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him, do you blepo? Do you discern? Do you understand anything? And he put his hand, he says, so I see men walking as trees. Is the man that just got prayed for blind there? Not anymore, right? When he says, I see men walking as trees, that's a completely different word. He was Tiflas, he was blind, Jesus prayed for him, now he's blepo. He's seeing without understanding. He's seeing without discerning. He says, I see men walking as trees. And he put his hands on his eyes again, and he was restored to sight and saw clearly, and he sent him to his house saying, go and tell no one. So here we have the word blind, and here we have the word see, tiflas, which is mean to comprehend and aware. And then when he says, when he was fully restored, his sight it is a compound word, which means full restoration with understanding. So this is how you break your Bible down. So while we look at a verse like Acts 9, or we look at a verse like Acts 22, and we create dogmas that say Jesus got knocked Paul off his horse, well, that's a dogma because he's not in the, there's no horse in the thing. And then we look at the verse and we say, well, Jesus blinded him. Well, you can't say Jesus blinded him because it doesn't relate to Jesus in any aspect. Even Paul himself didn't say I was blinded because of Jesus. So I was blinded because of the lights. We have to eliminate that. Then we have to say, well, okay, well, he was blind. We have to eliminate that too because you go down to the grammar. You see what I'm saying? So what happened to Paul? Paul had an encounter with God, flat out. The word for light is the word phos. It's where we get the word phosphorus. Paul said, I looked upon the phos. I looked upon the phosphorus light. Anybody here ever weld at all? You ever weld without a shield? What happens to your eyes? You get little spots in your eyes. You, get, you can't see, right? I couldn't see because of the blinding light. So what happened? Something happened to Paul. We're gonna argue that, absolutely. Something happened. I'm not saying nothing happened. I'm not even saying that he couldn't see without discernment, but we can't say he was blind. We can't use that as a usage and say that Jesus made people blind. You can't say that. You can have an opinion that says that, but you can't say that according to the text. So what happened? He had an encounter with God. He saw Jesus. The light blinded him and he was without discernment. And so they led him into town. I opened my eyes and I, he couldn't understand anything. And I couldn't see because of the light. So probably for three days, Paul was seeing nothing but light. And then Ananias prayed for him and something fell off his eyes. And that encounter not only did that to him, that encounter enabled him to have revelation like never before. From that point forward, so we can't, oh, Jesus, did, Jesus you know, Jesus didn't, he, he didn't heal Paul. He, or he just, you know, Jesus has given him sickness. You can't say that. Wrong answer. And so here we have, we have Paul from that point forward having revelation into the spirit like nobody else. So the encounter with God caused him to not have discernment and caused him to be disillusioned for a period of days. He was prayed for. His eyes were restored. Something again happened. And now Paul has spiritual insight into the depths and the mysteries of the kingdom of God and ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. This is, how you, this is how Bible doctrine is understood. This is how we break down text. This is how when, we, when you're trying to understand something from the scripture, this is, what, this is what pastors should do. This is the responsibility of the pastors when they teach the people, is to exegist the text and not just say, well, or this or that, or just wing it and say, I feel this, I think that, I want that. We don't do that, you're not to do that. You're to take the text as it says, and you're to teach the people the text as it says. And anytime there's a problem or anytime you see there's an inconsistency, I can assure you the problem's on your side. 
So when you find inconsistencies in the scriptures because you're not, there's something you're not understanding or there's, some, there's another avenue into which this understanding is to be gained. So while you can look at that verse and say, well, this is what was happening there, that's, and, and people say that all the time, you can't actually say that from the text when you exegese it. Do you understand what I just said? Right? Now, I know this is a little heady for some of you. right? And let me just explain to you. As I was praying, not wanting to do any of this, I don't like teaching sometimes the things that God tells me to teach. I don't want to do it. Why? For varying a lot of reasons. Because I tremble to speak the word of God. And when God gives you something, you, if you don't tremble at it, you shouldn't say it. And I want to run half the time when he tells me to say something. I want to hide. I want to go live in the garage or the shed. I want to be, where's Pastor Kevin? He's in Costa Rica. Why? Because he didn't, I'm going to be like Jonah. I didn't want to share the word that God put in my heart to share. And as I was praying about it, I felt like the Lord was saying, you're going to have two groups of people, Kevin. So I thought he said, you're going to have the people that said, where Jesus said, blessed are those that believe and they don't see. Blessed are the ones who just accept the truths and don't need to be proofed. Blessed are they. But then we're going to have another group called Thomas's. And Thomas didn't have a problem with Jesus's death. He had a problem with Jesus's resurrection. And Thomas says, I will not believe. I absolutely refuse to believe unless I put my hands in his, in, his, in, his, in his arms and put my hand in his side. And Jesus said, is that what it's going to take? So let me prove it to you. So we have two camps. Some of you that are thinking, man, this is just too heady. I don't really need this. Well, you're probably over here in this camp that says, hey, man, I just believe it. This is Jesus, man. I'm just all in. I'm just like, wow, this is cool. Jesus said it. That's awesome. Jesus could do that. Wow, that's great. Then we have the other camp that needs a little bit more of a theological understanding. And you are the ones that need the text broken down for you. You are the ones that need the doctrine proved to you. You're over here on this side. But, the, but regardless, either one of the camps that you find yourself in, the issue is that you believe. That's what he told Thomas. No longer doubt, Thomas. Don't doubt my power. It wasn't his death. It was his resurrection. What did Thomas doubt? Did he doubt Jesus' death? He doubted Jesus' power until he encountered it. Once he encountered the power of God, he doubted no more. And so the issue was no longer doubt, Thomas. Whatever it takes to move you from this camp into this one, no matter if it takes you two years, like it took me and has taught me many times, it took me years to adapt a position and an understanding. Years. No matter how long it takes, don't doubt, believe. No matter what it is that ever it is you need, don't doubt, believe. So while this seems heady to some of you and others of you are just like, this is awesome. You know, you're just data people and you're just like, yeah, give me the data. That's awesome. But I don't, wanna, I don't want you to feel dissociated because you're saying, man, I just look at things a little more simply. I have a friend that's like that. He says, I tend to look at things a little more simply than you, Kevin. Well, the problem is, is that I teach. He does not. So I don't have the option of looking at things simply. I don't have that option because inevitably as a teacher, you're going to have to confront things that you need to explain or you need to be able to break down. And if I can't break the Bible down to you, I have a problem, you know? And if you're pastor or any pastor, if you come to this church, hey man, thank God you're here. But if you sit under a teaching and the, te and the, and the one who holds the authority cannot exegist the scripture, you have a problem. You have a problem. Not because he's a false teacher or anything like that, but he's gonna be very limited to the places he's gonna be able to lead you because he cannot discern the full counsel of God because he does not rightly divide the word of truth. And that is how you rightly divide the word of truth. All right, so there you go. So you, thank you, all right.
If you're a guest, I don't do this every Sunday, so it's not quite this intense. It's not like the Indy 500 where I'm just lapping the field, you know? I'm not, I don't do, I try to not do that, but anyway, let's pray. Let's close.